So there was this guy, he had a parrot, and apparently the parrot heard some uh, dirty words, and the parrot was, was swearing. So the guy went to a, uh, a veterinarian, a veterinary psychologist, and he, he asked what he should do about the fact that his parrot is saying uh, curse words. So the veterinarian asks the fellow, he says, do you have uh, a freezer at home? The guy said, yeah, sure, of course I have a freezer. So the veterinarian says, listen, next time the parrot says any of these naughty words, put him in a freezer, just for 30 seconds. Just put him in for 30 seconds and you can let him out. He says, really, that's all you can say? Yeah, it'll, it'll help. So he gets home, he didn't have to wait very long before the parrot said a bad word. So that's it, the guy took the parrot, and went over to the freezer, put him in the freezer, shut the freezer door, and he waited 30 seconds. After 30 seconds, he opens up the freezer door, and the parrot comes out, and the parrot says, I'm sorry. <laughs> the parrot says, I've been behaving terribly. The parrot says, I'm appalled at the way that I've been speaking. Parrot says, I resolve to turn over a, a new leaf. The guy's amazed how effective this little trick is. Parrot says, one more thing. Can I just ask, what did the turkey do? <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of motivation, <laughs> The question we're going to talk about tonight is what motivates a Jew? How do we motivate ourselves? How do we motivate our children? So right now, we're in a period of the year known as Sfira, or more specifically, Sfiras HaOimeh, which means the counting of the Oimeh. What's an Oimeh? I mean, how, how do you count them? You're not really counting the Eimer, but you're counting the days since the Eimer. What's the Eimer? Okay. Eimer is actually a biblical measurement. It's about a half a gallon. So really, it means counting the half gallon. Now it all makes sense. Okay. Eimer is a biblical measurement on the second day of Pesach, meaning the 16th of Nisan. They would do Hakrovas HaEimer. That's gathering an oimer's worth of measure of, of the early barley harvest, and they would bring it as a sacrifice. And what was the significance of that sacrifice? There's a verse that tells us that lechem, the koli, the charamel, that's bread and grains and roast grains, leiseichlu, you shall not eat, meaning it's a Prohibition against eating it. Ad etzim hayoyim hazeh until this day, meaning the 16th of Nisan, the second day of Pesach, the day when the oimer of barley is brought. Chukas oilam l'deiriseichem. This is an eternal statute, statute for all generations. B'chol mishveiseichem in all of your dwelling places. So the significance of Sfiras HaOimer and this time, this time period, you may have heard the term 
Kamach Yoshan, yeah? which is a little bit funny if you're unfamiliar with the concept when somebody's promising you that these baked goods are great, they're made from old flour. Right? But what it really means is that this is flour that comes from grain that took root before the 16th of Nisan. Now this time of year we don't really have such a problem because I don't believe there are any grains that grow this fast. I mean it's just a couple of weeks later. But when does it become an issue is in the fall. In the fall you have, you have flour that is from grain that was planted after the 16th of Nisan and already grew and was harvested and was milled and turned into flour. And that's when it becomes an issue, like uh, about six months from now, in the autumn, when you have a bag of flour and you have to ask yourself the question, is this from grain that took root before the 16th of Nisan, meaning it's old flour and therefore it's permitted, or did it take root after this past 16th of Nisan and therefore it's Kamach Chodesh, it is new flour and therefore it is not yet permissible. We have to wait until the following spring. Okay, so that, that's the basic concept of Yoshan, Chodosh, this particular um, prohibition. Now, surprise, surprise, like everything in Torah, there are different opinions. Of course, there are different opinions. Specifically, this is an agricultural law. So as I'm sure you're familiar, agricultural laws generally are kept in the land of Israel and not outside of the land of Israel. Like, you're probably not used to, if you, if you live in Chutzla audits, you're probably not used to, to, to mices, to taking mice, or, 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 or for sure not, for uh, example, Shvius, the seventh, you know, the seventh, the Shemitah year. So there's this element, there's this question of to what extent the Kemachiyosha is an agricultural law that is exclusively practiced in the land of Israel, or is it practiced as well outside of the land of Israel? Now, you follow me here a little bit with the, I know this is a little bit uh, late at night to be doing this kind of uh, scholarship, but if we can understand this law in practice, then we can also unlock the whole key about motivation, about what motivates a Jew, why we do mitzvahs, why we care. So let's go to the source of it. And by the way, another disclaimer that I want to make. This is not a discussion about halacha lamaisa. I'm not discussing halacha lamaisa. I'm not, I'm not discussing practical Jewish law as far as keeping kemach yoshin, how it's done, how it is done, how it's not done, who should do, when should, it's not the discussion. What I want to point out to you is an argument or a dispute in the Talmud itself. This dispute in the Talmud, which is in the Gora Kiddushin, is brought by Rashi when Rashi 
comments on the verse, the verse that I mentioned earlier about the mitzvah of the new flower, or the prohibition of the, of the new flower. Rashi says like this. Remember the verse before? That you shouldn't eat from the bread until this very day, the day of the 16th of Nisan, when the Oymer offering is brought. It's an eternal statue for all your traditions. Remember those words? In all of your dwelling places. And the words, in all of your dwelling places, Rashi comments and says the following. The sages of Israel were divided regarding this matter. As I said, this is a Gemara in Kiddushin. Rashi is bringing as commentary on the verse. The sages of Israel were divided regarding this matter. What does it mean, Behold, Meshve Seichem? Some sages learn, Behold, Meshve Seichem means in all of your dwellings, even outside of the land of Israel. That you should keep this prohibition even outside the land. Others, other sages held, no. Bechol meish the emphasis is on your dwelling. Yishuv, meaning Yishuv ha'aretz. It's telling us that the mitzvah, like other agricultural mitzvahs, the mitzvah of keeping the old flower, only using the old flower, avoiding the new flower, only applied after the seven years that the Jewish people under Yeshua's leadership conquered and divided the land. So during the 14 years where it was sort of uh, inter interim years, that mitzvah did not yet apply, but after they were settled in the land, then once you're settled in the land, then it does apply. But according to that opinion, in all of your dwellings does not mean even outside of the land of Israel. It means only in the land of Israel. Outside of the land of Israel, there is no such prohibition. Okay. So, I'm going to ask a few questions. First of all, what are these two approaches? And, and specifically, trying to understand them as, as perspectives. What is the, pers the perspective that says, first perspective, which, just, which says that the new flower is prohibited even outside of the land of Israel? I mean, it's a little bit of a chiddush. It's a little bit novel to say that. The flower that was going to be brought for the oymer, for that offering, could only be flower from the land of Israel. You can't bring flower from outside of the land of Israel. So it's kind of novel to say that that prohibition even extends to flower from outside the land of Israel. So what's that approach? And then conversely, the opposite question, the, the approach that says, no, there's no such prohibition outside the land of Israel. It's ex exclusively something that's done in the land. What's that approach? Second question. I'm just asking questions about Rashi. Second question. Why does Rashi say Chachme Yisrael? It's a funny expression. It's a funny, it's a funny turn of phrase. Rashi will often say 
Chachmenu Zal or Rabbeinu Zal, but Chachme Yisrael is an unusual expression. The sages of Israel, meaning the Jewish sages. The Jewish sages were divided over the matter of Kemachiosha. Who else? The Chinese sages? Which, which other sages are discussing this subject? So it's a funny expression, Chachme Yisrael. And then as long as we're asking questions, I'll ask a third question, which is, why this order? Why, when Rashi presents the two different camps, the two different um, points of view among the sages, first he mentions the one who says that the prohibition of the new flower does stand, is kept outside of the land, and then he mentions after that the opinion of the sages, or those sages who say that, no, the prohibition of the new flower is not applicable outside of the land. Just asking why he presents it in that order. Okay. And if we sort of deal with these questions, what we're going to do is understand a little bit motivation. You know, uh, Pavlov was in a bar, and the phone rang. And all of a sudden he says, oh, I forgot to feed the dog. <laughs> it's always a test of an intellectual crowd when I tell that joke. So Pavlov, of course, was, now I'm going to explain the joke. Right? What do they say? That if you analyze a joke, it's like dissecting a frog. You understand the frog better, but it's dead. <laughs> so, whatever. I told the joke already. So, Pavlov was a, uh, a psychologist who studied behavior, conditioning specifically. And he had a theory about conditioning the dog. Pavlov had a dog. And how did he condition the dog? Is he would feed the dog a treat and he would ring a bell. And then after a while, he would just ring the bell. And the dog associated the bell with the treat, and then the dog would salivate. So he basically trained the dog to salivate upon hearing the bell. That's why it's funny when Pavlov's at the bottom, he hears the phone ring, and he says, oh, I forgot to feed the dog, because he was training himself as well. You get it? Okay, fine. Hilarious, right? <laughs> the point is, how did Pavlov train the dog? What did he use? Food. Food is a motivator. Food is just its a basic thing that people care about. Okay? So that's how you train dogs. It happens to be also the way you train people. Food is a big incentive, right? Hence, you know, kiddish following services, right? Being the prime example of that principle. Um, or the advice that many a mother has given a single daughter, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? Food is a motivator. There's something primal about it. There's something very, very, uh, you know, survival mechanism hardwired about it. Where's my food? So you can get me locked in on something by, you can incentivize something by providing food. You can create a disincentive by depriving food. Now, of course, we have an economy, so we don't just barter food. We use money to buy food. But again, money is about buying my life's needs, buying basically food, 
putting bread on the table. There's a reason for that turn of phrase. So what motivates people, what motivates them is economics. Where am I going to eat? Where am I going to get my resources from? That's why the, 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 the Talmud says, you know, in the, in the, today we have dollars or, you know, uh, pounds sterling or euros or yen. But in the old days, what was the big currency? If you remember from Pesach, those who said the Chagadya after the, so what was the big currency in the Chagadya days? The Zuzim, right? Right, the father bought the, the goat for two Zuzim. Right, so the currency, the big currency, was called a zuz. And the word zuz has a double meaning. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a homophone, because it means the currency of the day, like the dollar of the day, but zuz also means zuz, move, right. Why? Because money is a motivator. It moves people. Okay, so if I want to incentivize something, I, I involve food, or the money that you use to buy food. If I want to create a disincentive, so then I start docking you pay, right? I'm going to take away food or take away money that you use to buy food. And it just, that's the basic way to get people to do stuff. Do you, I just want, I'm, I'm genuinely asking, do you know or do you remember, does, does, does it, no pun intended, but does it ring a bell whatsoever? If I mention to you something called Encarta. You ever heard of Encarta? Okay. Microsoft started a project. They put millions of dollars into this. It's ringing a bell now. Called Encarta. Okay. Encarta was going to be an online encyclopedia. It was going to be better than the World Book, better than Encyclopedia Britannica. It was going to just be up to date, constantly updated by the best experts, and they hired the best experts. And they had project managers, and they had deadlines, and they had huge, fun, endless Bill Gates, Deep Pockets funding to make this project work. And then this little upstart came along called Wikipedia. And they weren't paying anyone a dime. There was no money on the table. There were no professionals. And if you would have asked any expert in the world, what's going to happen, Encarta or Wikipedia? That's a joke. Encarta is the juggernaut, and it's going to eat Wikipedia alive. It's not even going to eat Wikipedia alive. Wikipedia is going to be, it, it's like, it, it's like an ant fighting an elephant. It's irrelevant. And yet, Encarta, the project was canceled. It was a huge loss. I mean, I'm sure Microsoft can take the hit, they can absorb the loss, but it was a huge loss, it was a huge failure. And Wikipedia today is one of the most visited sites on the entire internet. Now, I'm not the one who made this observation, okay, I'll confess to you. There's a book, which I didn't read, which I'll also confess to you, called um, Drive. And it was a New York, a New York Times bestseller. Drive. Uh, and the, the subtitle is The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And it was written by a guy named Daniel H. Pink, and he did a TED Talk, and I watched the TED Talk. So this is how it, in 10 minutes, I, have, I, can, I can talk about a book as if I've read it. Okay. So basically, what, is, what does Pink say? He says like this. 
classical conditioning, motivation, the way we think of it, is carrot and stick. By the way, when I was a kid, I used to think it was carrot on a stick. <laughs> I thought it was dangling a carrot from a stick. Okay, but it's carrot and stick. It's sur merav right? So there's the reward and there's the punishment. The carrot is the incentive, and you. So the classic carrot and stick is there's a mule. The mule has the cart on his back, and you want to get the mule to schlep the cart. So the farmer stands next to, besides the mule. He's got a carrot and he's got a stick. The carrot he holds in front of the mule and he uses it to lure him forward. And then the stick he holds behind the mule. The mule starts lagging. Give him a little potch. Give him a little, you know, just to remind him. And so the combination of the mule's desire for the incentive, the carrot, and his desire to get away from, or his, his um, lack of desire for the disincentive, meaning the the hit from the stick, and that's how you move the that's how you move the mule. Okay. What this fellow discovered after studying motivation is that carrot and stick motivation works really poorly on human beings. In fact, it produces worse results than if you use no reward system at all. And he had to explain that. Why is it worse than using no reward system at all? You might say it doesn't do much. But he was actually saying, no, it's not only it doesn't do much, it, it, it's counterproductive. It does the opposite. Okay. So explain like this. For a mule, it works because the mule's task is, 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 is mindless. It's mindless. It's not thinking work. It's just pulling a cart. And that's what he found, that when human beings do fairly mindless work, like let's say it's unskilled labor. That's, he said, the one exception where you see carrot and stick incentives and disincentives working to some extent is in unskilled labor. But the minute you introduce any type of creativity or decision making, where somebody actually has to think and make choices, which in today's automated society, most jobs are about thinking. They're thinking jobs. We're not laborers. We, we have, we, our jobs are cerebral. So the minute the job entails any type of thinking or choices, the carrot and stick starts be, to become counterproductive. It starts yielding worse results. And he figured out why. Because if you tell the team that if you write the code or you fix the bug in the code, you're going to go to Hawaii. They can't focus on fixing the code. They're thinking about Hawaii. So if it's just ditch digging, okay, so think about Hawaii while you're, while you're ditch digging. That's more akin to the mule. But anytime there's any type of thinking, and you're thinking about the incentive, or you're thinking about the disincentive, it produces worse results. So he explained like this. This is the mystery of Encarta versus Wikipedia. Encarta had incentives. Encarta had all of the experts being paid top dollar to do what they do. Wikipedia had none of that. What did Wikipedia have? The people were personally invested. They cared about the project. Somebody who cares about the project, who finds the work intrinsically valuable, you can't compare that level of productivity to somebody who's being bribed to do it. Because 
let's be frank, when you have to incentivize work, you're admitting that the work is not intrinsically valuable. Otherwise, you'd come in and do it for free. You'd be doing it on your spare time, like Wikipedia editors who have a passion for it. I remember when I was a kid growing up in Chicago, and Michael Jordan had a special clause in his contract. Athletes are not allowed to play unsupervised. They're not allowed to play outside of the games or official practices. Why? Because it's a huge liability. Imagine he's playing pickup uh, basketball in the, in the front driveway and he sprains his ankle. That's going to cost somebody hundreds of millions of dollars. But Jordan had a love of the game clause in his contract, which was that if he's driving by the park and he sees people playing pickup basketball and he has a tiger that he has to go play basketball with them, then his contract allows him to do it. And he's protected from any liability. He doesn't have to absorb the liability. It's not a considered a... Uh, nullification of the terms of the contract, like it would be for any other professional athlete. The point is, Jordan got paid more than anyone else in his time to play basketball, but he would have played for free. And that's what made him the best. So, I'll give you another example. There was a study that was done where they, on a college campus, they had people come in and stare at a wall. And in, in a dark room. And on the wall, there's projected like a, a dot, a beam of light. And it did nothing. And they had to stare at that dot for half an hour. It's almost like solitary confinement. It's maddening. Okay. So at the end of the half an hour, they would come out of the room. And then some official looking guy with a lab coat and a clipboard, he would ask you, um, talk about what you saw. Nobody saw anything except for a dot of light against the wall that didn't move for half an hour. And then, at the very end, he would ask you, one more thing, would you recommend this to a friend? Would you recommend to a friend to also be part of this experiment? They had two groups. One group was paid $20 to sit in the dark for half an hour and stare at a light on the wall. The other group was paid nothing. They found a direct and overwhelming correlation of recommending the project or the experiment to a friend coming from which group? The one that got paid nothing. The people who were paid $20, they knew why they were sitting and looking at the, the light for $20. So what I tell my friend to do this, I don't know, it depends how bad he wants $20. Maybe there's easier ways to make $20. People who got paid nothing, they would say stuff like, yeah, it was kind of interesting. And, and who knows, maybe it was. Maybe it's not purely cognitive dissonance. Maybe if you're sitting there, you're a creative person, and you're staring at a light for a half an hour, I don't know, maybe you'll find something Interesting about it. When's the last time you stared at light for a half an hour like that? I mean, other than people who, uh, you know, take psychedelics. But, it, you know, people, <laughs> sober people don't stare at a light on the wall for half an hour. Maybe if you did, you'd see something unusual, right? So, the point is, the incentivized people 
understood full well that there's no inherent value to the project. People who have no incentive, they discover inherent value to the project. So this, this is the secret of motivation. Do you have to or do you get to? The, 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 those are the two phrases. Do you have to or do you get to? Somebody asked me, a friend of mine, not a chassid, he said, how do they get those people to go to places like, and I forget what the place du jour that was the surprising weird place to go to at that point. <laughs> if it would have been last year, it would be, uh, be uh, Ghana. But uh, two years ago, South Dakota. But you know, three years ago, it was whatever it was. But this was a few years ago. And, uh, there was a guy who I consider to be very intelligent, very with it, but not from that culture. And so he said, how do they get people, how do they talk them into, like how do you convince them? Because first of all, he was like, he knew, he knew enough to say, by the way, they're not getting paid for this, right? They're not, there's no like, central funding where they're on salary for the rest of their life. There's no like 401k or anything. So he knew that. That's not like they're doing it to, to, for financial stability. To the contrary, there's no financial stability. So he was asking, how do you talk guys into doing this? Going on shleichus, yeah. How do you get people to do it? How do you find the suckers who are willing to do it? So I told him, I said, you have to understand something. If you had to talk people into doing it, you couldn't talk anyone into doing it. You could get them to do it for five years, maybe. But you couldn't get them to do it carte blanche, sign away your life. This is a you know, lifetime commitment. There's no matriculation. There's no hierarchy. There's no, you know, I'll build my resume and then apply for a better position some, somewhere else. If you had to convince people to do this as a permanent thing, as a lifetime commitment, you, you couldn't talk them into it. I said, but, you, but, but here's what you're missing. You don't have to go to Ghana. You get to go to Ghana. It's a totally different perspective. You don't have to go. No one's forcing you to go. There's no special prize if you go. And there's no punishment if you don't go. You get to go. You get to be part of this. You get to live this type of meaning. So if you look at it as something you're, you're trying to find candidates, you're headhunting, you're trying to find candidates, and then trying to come up with a package, an incentive package, to get the best talent to do these types of jobs, you already missed it from the get-go. You, you're, you're not going to get people to do it. But if you can somehow, like the Rebbe did, teach people that there's inherent value to the shlichus, that being the only observant Jew in Ghana, and, 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 and ha having, you know, a hundred Jews, forget about observant, but a hundred Jews in your whole, you know, within a thousand mile radius of you, and that you're going to be there to serve these people. You can't do that because of any incentive or disincentive. You do that because you find inherent worth in that type of work. Now, all of us, if you talk about 
developmental psychology. Now, I don't mean Piaget's developmental psychology. I mean the developmental psychology of Maimonides. The Rambam talks about motivation as far as a principle of education. And the Rambam says that at first you do use incentive with children. And what are incentives? You know, like we are talking about before, most basic physical body, you know, the body. You give them treats, yummies, you give them treats, stuff that you can eat now. But ultimately, the Rambam says that the mature person comes to serve Hashem out of love. So at first you might do it because of the, the treat. But as you mature, you do it out of love, which really is a, is a way of saying, to use the terminology from, uh, from Drive, extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. Those are the terms that he uses over there. At first, you use extrinsic motivation because the person isn't mature enough to appreciate the value of the mitzvah, the value of doing Hashem's will. But ultimately, if that's his whole Judaism, if it's based on extrinsic motivation, I mean, you're severely limited then. And, and invariably, at some point, an adult will find ways to get his own treats. So, he doesn't have to come to shul and look in the siddur in order to get the piece of cake. He'll go out and buy his own piece of cake, kosher or not. Ultimately, the only way to keep someone in the fold is they have to value the work. They have to value the work itself. Now, let, let me clarify one thing. Let me tell you what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that you upgrade from candies to higher levels in Ghanadin. That's an upgrade. That's not switching streams. That's just refining your tastes. So the kid, the five-year-old, says, Amen Yehesh Meirabba for the candy. And the adult says, Amen Yehesh Meirabba for the spiritual candy. For a higher level in Ghana. That's not switching streams. That's not intrinsic motivation. That's not valuing the work. That's just finding out, you know, like they say, little boys, little toys, big boys, big toys. So the little kid is happy with his candy, and the big man wants something more substantial than candy. He wants a nice lichtige Ghana. He wants a nice high place next to the Kisar Kovid in Ghanaian. But that's still not intrinsic motivation. That's not intrinsic motivation. That's still, you have to be bribed to, to get you to do this work. I was, I was brought once to advise, it was a, I won't say where it was, but it was a city somewhere on earth. And, and it wasn't in America. And I was brought there. They had a crisis. They had a very, very nice organization. 
It's a well-known organization, whatever, that's why I'm not being specific. But part of what they were doing, it's not their main uh, mission, but as part of, it was, it was deemed to be within their purview that they were sponsoring people uh, for therapy. They were paying the bills, basically, or subsidizing bills for people to go to therapy. And the crisis they had was that a huge number of the people going to therapy were, were leaving Yiddishkeit, they were abandoning religion. So they, they said, this is not what we're paying for. We're not paying for people to leave Yiddishkeit. And it wasn't so simple like, well, they identified that the, 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 the therapists were anti-religious. It wasn't like that, because if that, I mean, that would be an easy solution. I mean, that would be an easy problem to find a solution for. If you identify the fact that therapists are actually feeding them, you know, uh, baiting them to, to reject religion, then you don't use those people. But it, it wasn't like that. It was... Um, People, you know, therapists didn't have an agenda like that. And they wanted to continue providing this service, but not if they were going to get the results that they were getting. So anyways, they, they had me come in to address the issue. So I'll tell you what I told them. I told them like this. I said, first of all, you should understand that I'm, I'm going to speak in sweeping generalities right now, but the, the secular world and, and the world that is the predominant, um, the predominant worldview of therapy is not immoral, it's amoral. Immoral means I know what's right, I know what's wrong, and I'm going to do what's wrong. Amoral means I'm not concerned with the question of right or wrong. It has nothing to do with the price of tea in China, as they say. So we don't examine the question of morality, we examine other questions. So our criteria for good choices in life isn't necessarily, you know, right and wrong, and certainly not absolute right and wrong, like, with, with, you know, from a divine code. It's more about, I mean, again, I'm, these are sweeping generalizations, but like, you know, does it work for you? Does it make you happy? Um, my father, may he be well, is a psychologist, and I'm saying that because he told me this joke. As a rabbi, see, I rebelled and I became a rabbi, but my father's a psychologist, and he told me this joke. The joke is, and I'm saying this, that he told me the joke. He says, a guy walks into a bar, and he, offer, he orders a, a shot of whiskey, and the bartender lines it up, and the guy takes the shot of whiskey, and he looks at it, he splashes it in the bartender's face. The bartender says, you get out of here. Throws the guy out. The next day, the guy comes in. Same guy comes in. He says to the bartender, give me a shot of whiskey. The bartender says, no, get out of here. You're banned from here. He says, no, 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 it's okay. I'm sorry. That was not, it wasn't myself yesterday. Give me a shot of whiskey. So the bartender sets up a shot of whiskey on the bar. The guy takes the shot, looks at it. Splashes it in the bartender's face. The bartender says, you're banned for life. Don't ever, ever step foot in here again. A year later, a year later, the guy comes in, and the bartender recognizes him. He says, whoa, whoa, get out of here. You're banned for life. The guy says, no, listen, listen. You haven't seen me for a year, right? Okay, yeah, I haven't. He says, what do you think I'm doing the past year? I'm in therapy. So the bartender says, fine. You're in therapy for a year. Come on. The guy says, I want a shot of whiskey. The bartender puts the shot glass, pours the whiskey. Guy takes the glass, takes a look at it, 
splashes it in the bartender's face. The bartender says, I thought you said you're in therapy for a year. The guy says, yeah, I was. Now when I do that, I don't feel guilty anymore. <laughs> So I was telling this group, I said, look, when they're in therapy and they're exploring what works for me, what doesn't work for me, what makes me happy, what doesn't make me happy, and then they run into a conflict where, um, let's say religion doesn't make me happy. And maybe there's real reasons for that, maybe there's some real issues, maybe, maybe there's trauma, that's one of the most legitimate reasons. Is, trauma, and if you grew up religious and you get traumatized growing up, your trauma is usually going to have some type of religious association, right? So yeah, it could very well be that religion evokes some type of painful uh, association. No question. Okay, but the question, if somebody is devoted to what he believes to be right and wrong, especially God's de definition of right and wrong, then you work through the trauma, you figure it out, you, you, you come up with a solution. But if the, the whole milieu is amoral, well then, okay, I've got a choice to make. This makes me feel bad, this makes me feel good. I'm not killing anybody, I'm just eating a ham sandwich, so what's the big deal? So what I told them is, I said, ostensibly, the religious upbringing of any one of these people should have immuned them or immunized them to this type of argument. In other words, the fact that they were raised in a religious Jewish household, that itself should have built within them a, 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 uh, a sniff test where the minute they hear somebody saying, well, let's figure out what works better for you, what makes you happy, that should have immediately, you know, set off some type of like, ding, ding, well, hold on. That's the criterion in life. That's why we make decisions. In other words, if somebody was, was raised religiously, where you're doing things for God, then you would think if that seeped in, then at least, even if that's not the, pri the primary criterion for making decisions in life, at least it's got to be on the table, at least it's got to be part of the cheshbon. It's got to be something we're taking into consideration. Hold on a second. This might be more comfortable for me, but is this what God wants of me? And I, I told them, I think it's interesting that you're reporting to me a, a, that it's endemic, or at least there's a, a high rate of incidence of religious people from this community who, well, the minute they have the opportunity to do what's easier or more comfortable or more fulfilling or, or more personally meaningful, uh, that has an allure to them that they, they don't have defense against. That, that, that's funny to me. So I asked them to consider if it's possible that it isn't a lack of Jewish education that has led to this situation, but it's the type of Jewish education itself that they received. If you raise a kid 
that we do mitzvahs for candies. There's no question you're raising a hedonist. Okay. But what if you raise a kid? Now he's a little bit older. Now he's bar mitzvah. Now he's 18. Now he's 20. Now he's 30. And, and what do you tell him? We do mitzvahs so that we can experience pleasure in the world to come. Taimug in Olam Haba. You've just primed him to be susceptible to the false argument that life is about what makes you feel good. Because what did you tell him? You told him life's about pleasure. No, 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 I didn't tell him life's about pleasure. What did you say? I said life is about time and able to Yeah, translate that. Life is about pleasure in the world to come. Right, world to come. No, no, no. You want him to have the pleasure in the world to come. But he heard the main part of your statement, life's about pleasure. He just figured out a way to get it easier and faster and cheaper. You want him to have pleasure in the world to come. Okay, he'll, he'll have it now. But he heard your main point, that we serve God, that Hashem gave us the Torah in order for us to be able to accrue a lot of pleasure. And that's what he's doing. He's living a life that affords him pleasure, or at least whatever he thinks right now is going to give him pleasure. So then they asked me, well, if you don't say that, what are you allowed to say? You know, <laughs> then what do you say? Then why do we do it? So I told them, look, it says in the Mishnah, in Pirkei Oves, don't be like the servants who serve their master in order to receive a reward. doesn't say there isn't a reward. God forbid. We believe in an afterlife and that there's cause and effect. And that our afterlife is linked to what we do in this world. Of course we believe in reward and punishment but it's not our motivation. That's what it means. Don't be like the servants who serve in order to receive a reward. They know about the reward. Of course I know about it. But it's certainly not the first thing I think of before I put on film in the morning. It's not what I'm thinking of. All right, so then what are you thinking? If that's not what you're thinking, then what do you think? So I told them, look, you could just as easily substitute it with another motivation. Our sages tell us, I was only created, or rather, it says, it says it in the negative, I was not created except to serve my maker. What am I here for? I'm here to be useful to my maker. When you tell a kid that the reason we serve Hashem is because we were made to be useful to Hashem, we were made to serve. Life is about service. Life is about being useful. There's not too far that he can stray based on those instructions. But if you tell a kid life's about pleasure in the world to come, he'll find pleasure 
just not necessarily where you want them to find it. If you tell them life's about service, what's the worst misinterpretation that can come from that? What's the worst that's going to happen? He'll be selfless, and he won't be able to articulate why. That will be the worst avlo that will come from it, somebody who's living a good, productive, wholesome life, and he can't explain it to you. As opposed to what? The hedonist who's very articulate. He can explain to you. He's a real, uh, what do you call it, the uh, epicurean. He knows how to explain to you just why all of his pleasures of this world are important and worth living for and are the meaning of life. So the bottom line is like this. We teach our children, and if we weren't taught as children, then we teach ourselves that when it comes to serving Hashem, you don't have to, you get to. There's no bribe required for something you want to do. This is Wikipedia, not Encardia. We do this for fun and for free. We do this because this is the most meaningful way to live. Not personally meaningful, although, yeah, I suppose that too, as sort of an afterthought. But meaningful in the objective and absolute sense of this is what has meaning. Period. This is what I was created to do. And does it happen to work out that when I live in a manner that is consistent with my maker's design for me, that I'm healthier emotionally and mentally and physically? Yes, of course, it happens. As a side benefit, that happens to work out. But primarily I do it because this is what I'm here to do. So let's look at the let's look at the, the different opinions within the Talmud regarding the prohibition of the new flower. Remember, we asked I think three questions about this Rashi. So the first one, what was the first question? Remember this far back. What does each approach represent? What is there each approaches to the specific discussion about whether the prohibition of the new flower applies outside the land of Israel or not, but they also represent larger worldviews. So what does each represent? That was the first question. Second question, what do you remember the second question? Yeah, why are they called Chachme Yisrael? Like, who else would they be? And our third question is, why that order? Why does he tell us first the Talmudic opinion that we do have the prohibition of the new flower outside of the land of Israel? And then second, he tells us afterwards that we don't have such a prohibition outside of the land of Israel. Okay, so here it goes. Let's think about motivation. Let's think about incentive and disincentive. Sefer Achinoch says that the meaning of Hakrovas Ha'aymer is 
and this is a common theme in many mitzvahs, especially agricultural mitzvahs, that the first portion goes to Hashem. So until the Oimer offering has been given to Hashem in the Bishamikdash, we don't partake of the new crop. Okay? Basic concept that we see as a recurring theme in many mitzvahs, especially agricultural mitzvahs. Hashem gets first dibs, then the rest of us can have. Now, that flour that is used for Akravas Ha'aymer is only Eretz Yisrael de Keflat. It's only flour that actually comes from the land. Flour that comes from outside of the land wouldn't qualify. Somebody couldn't bring, you know, a farmer couldn't bring his, his flour from, from Nebraska and say, well, this, this is this is the best flour. You know, on the open market, in the commodities, the Nebraska flour, that's the best. No, I'm sorry, it has to be Eretz Yisrael. So, there's two ways of making this point. I want to teach a point. I want The point is, Hashem gets first, we get after Hashem. Okay? So, every year, we get an opportunity, a teachable moment, every year, right after Pesach, second day of Pesach, 16th day of Nisan, to teach this lesson. The question is, how do you best teach this lesson to the Jews in Chutzla audits who eat flour all year long that is not eligible for a Krovosalimer, for this offering? One approach says, look, you want to make something matter to people, hit them in the pocketbook, hit them where they care, or, you know, even more primal, hit them in the stomach, you know, deprive them of food. You tell a Jew, you see that nice piece of kokosh over there? That's, that's kemech chodosh, it's new flour, and until Hashem gets his portion of the new crop, you can't eat your pastry. Oh, wow, what a bummer. That's rough. That's one way of teaching the lesson. Another way of teaching the lesson is, you tell a Jew from Chutzlaritz, you know this flower here? This is not even eligible for the, an Eimer offering. Yeah, it's just regular, mundane Chutzlaritz flower. Go ahead and eat it. It doesn't even mean anything. What? Well, hold it. What about the prohibition of the new flower? Nah, we don't have that here. Well, but I want to have that mitzvah. No, you don't get to have that mitzvah. That's why it says Chachme Yisrael. Chachme Yisrael could be read as a double meaning. Not Jewish wise men, but you know, there's like Chachme Hatava, I mean scientists, right? Or um, it's uh, another example. Chachmei Harufua means doctors, physicians. Chachmei Yisrael means Jew experts. People who are experts in Jews. The Chachmei Yisrael. Rashi uses this funny term. Chachmei Yisrael. Nechloku Chachmei Yisrael. The Jew experts. Not the experts who are Jewish. The experts in... They happen to also be Jewish. But, like the best Jewish jokes are told by Jews. But... They're Jewish experts, but their expertise is in Jews, and specifically, what motivates a Jew. And there are two camps within the Jew experts. And one camp says, you want to motivate the Jews, you want to, make some, you want to teach a lesson, deprive them of their cookies, because that's what matters to people. And tell them, even though they live outside of the land, they can't eat the new flour until 
the Omer is brought, the day that the Omer would have been brought in the Beis HaMikdash. The other camp says, no, 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 you don't understand Jews. You don't understand what makes them tick. If you want to really motivate a Jew, you know what you tell them? Tell them, not that they're going to miss out on a cookie, that they're going to miss out on a mitzvah. You don't even get to do that mitzvah. And that will arouse them to, to want Mashiach to come, so we'll have to be some Mikdash again, and all the flour will be that's a sold like a flower. And that's why Rashi says the first opinion is that we do have the prohibition of the new flower outside of the land of Israel. And the second opinion is that we don't. Because if you're talking in levels of maturity or stages of development, so maybe stage one is, like those people who say, the best incentive is withhold the cookie. So that's the first opinion. But then ultimately, you're supposed to outgrow that. And the second stage, we enter the second stage, and that's where the opinion of the second group of Chachme Yisrael applies. That ultimately, what's the biggest motivation to a Jew? What would be the biggest disincentive you could ever tell a Jew? Is that you're going to be in a situation where you're going to miss out on a mitzvah. How else do you create somebody who gets on a plane and realizes that he, his tefillin is in his checked baggage below and that he's not going to land until after sunset and that he will do whatever, he'll, he'll fake a heart attack, he'll do whatever he has to do to be thrown off that plane with his checked baggage so he can put on tefillin. How else do you cultivate within a Jew the sense that these things are important no matter what, no matter where, no matter who's watching? I don't do it for incentive. I don't do it for disincentive. I don't do it because it impresses the neighbors. I don't even do it to make myself feel good. I don't even do it to make myself feel good. You know, the warm fuzzy of knowing you've done the right thing. And even higher than that, I don't even do it for a higher level in Ganyan. Irrelevant to me. Why do I do it? Because mitzvahs have intrinsic value. What is the intrinsic value of a mitzvah? It's very simple. Here's what I want to leave you with. If you have a group of kindergartners, and you say, in the classes, the classroom is messy. The classroom is messy. You say to these kindergartners, come on, kinderloch, let's clean up the classroom. And they don't particularly care <coughs> that the classroom is messy. So what do you tell them? If everyone cleans up their spot, then teacher is going to give everyone a scoop of ice cream. Yay, and everyone cleans their spot, and then the whole room is clean, and then the teacher goes around and gives dolls out scoops of ice cream. Okay, beautiful. You tell me, my dear friends, is there any actual cause and effect relationship between clean classrooms and scoops of ice cream? Zero cause and effect relationship. That is absolutely arbitrary, right? Because it could have been scoops of ice cream and it could have been $100 bills. Totally arbitrary. The teacher just takes this 
and superimposes it, it superimposes it artificially into the situation, and there's no link between the work they did and the payment that they got for it. As opposed to what? You're an adult, and you live in a house, and you say, come on, family, and hopefully everyone's this mature, let's all clean up our stuff, and collectively, what will be our reward? <sighs> we'll live in a clean house. What's the reward for cleaning the house? You get to live in a clean house. What's the reward for a mitzvah? Schar mitzvah mitzvah, right? The reward for a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. That does not mean, like many people think, the reward for a mitzvah is the good feeling you get. The good feeling isn't the mitzvah. The good feeling is something, something else. You might get a good feeling from a mitzvah. That's not what Schar mitzvah mitzvah means. Schar mitzvah mitzvah means mitzvahs have objective value. Mitzvahs accomplish something. When you do a mitzvah, you take a physical object, and you link it up with its real purpose for, what, for which it really exists. You elevate it from the mundane to the holy. And cumulatively, when we use all of this physical world for holy purposes, we take this physical world and we transform it into holiness so that the physical world becomes holier than heaven. And we call that tipping point, we call that critical mass, transformational shift, we call that Mashiach. So what is the reward for us grown-ups here who have a mature relationship with God? What's the reward for doing a mitzvah that refines the physical world and makes the world just a little bit holier? We get to live in a holy world. God willing, very soon, a completely, 100% transformed holy world with the coming of Mashiach. That's it. That's our bottom line. Make sense? Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you.